Before we dive into highlights from the 30th annual EMU conference, if you're one of the 8,000 fine folks who have signed up for the EM Cases newsletter that comes out once every two weeks, the one that keeps you up to date on the latest that EM Cases has to offer, be sure also to sign up for the Q&A Pearl of the Week and the Just the Nuggets emails where we review each main episode podcast in divided chunks. And speaking of consolidating your knowledge from the main episode podcasts, hopefully you've checked out the fairly new Rapid Reviews video series on the EM Cases site. We've got a team of six people working really hard to help that knowledge stick in your huge brains so that you can take stellar care of your patients. Okay, so to kick off our podcast on highlights from this year's EMU conference, my personal favorite large-scale EM conference, we've got my colleague at North York General Hospital, Lior Summer, who was one of the guest experts on the ENT episode way back, and he'll be speaking at the upcoming third annual EM Cases course in Toronto on February 3rd. Yes, save that date, February 3rd in Toronto, the EM Cases course. Anyhow, Lyme disease has spilled over from the United States into Canada in the last few years, and so I thought it timely that we have an update on Lyme. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. My name's Lior Summer. I'm a community emergency physician in the Toronto area. And like you, when I go into work, I go in to see patients, I go in and do my clinical duties, but some days, I don't know if you guys feel like this, I feel like I'm not necessarily wandering into a hospital, but it feels a little bit more like wandering into the front lines. Because there are a lot of similarities between these soldiers in World War I and us. We work in a very harrowing environment. It's crowded. It's unpredictable. There's a limited amount of space. We are just taking care of people wherever we can. And sometimes we even need to protect ourselves with specialized equipment during Ebola. You know, we had to figure out how to wear all this personal protective equipment. Anyone had to do that at their hospitals? Sometimes we actually even have to set up a mobile command stations. So during SARS, we, we set up a mobile command station to see patients outside the department. And that, you know, it always reminded me of just the, you know, the good old 4077. We're just seeing patients in the field. And many of us have had close run-ins with infectious diseases, either that we've ourselves had, have had or our family members. And I'll tell you about a case that I had. This is my, uh, my beautiful daughter, Rachel. And here she is just outside a house we rented in Martha's Vineyard. And this kid is, you know, kinetic energy encapsulated. She does not stop moving. She'll do three hours of gymnastics and come home and jump on the couch for another two hours. She doesn't stop moving. So she was running around in these grasses. And we were having a great time. For those of you who don't know where Martha's Vineyard is, it's just off the coast of Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And it's beautiful. We swam in the ocean. We went hiking. We ate a lot of lobster. It was, it was great. And we got home. And uh, it was the beginning of July, and so Rachel went off to day camp, and I went to work, because eventually I got to do that. And I was on a day shift, and I got a call from my wife saying, you know, she, she woke up feeling not so good, and uh, she has a bit of a temperature. I'm like, okay, well, give her some Tylenol, see how she feels. So she got some Tylenol, she was feeling much better, and so she went to camp. She biked like a couple kilometers to camp, because she doesn't stop moving. Uh, and then you know, I finished my shift, and on my way home, I got the call from the camp saying, uh, can you come pick her up, because she's not feeling so hot. Uh, okay, no problem. So I go pick her up. She's okay. We go home, have our usual thing in the evening, and then I'm getting her ready to have a bath, and she says, um, you know, I've got a mosquito bite. I'm like, okay, show it to me. So she shows it to me. That's not a mosquito bite. <laughs> she got Lyme disease, right? And back then, it seemed really quite exotic. But I flash forward seven years, and it's not so exotic anymore. Lyme disease is here in Toronto. Right? I've seen a few cases in the past couple of years. Endemic Lyme disease. Because Lyme is here now, so we need to know about it. We are the front line, and we need to make that diagnosis. And for those of you who don't know, and I'm sure most of you do, Lyme disease is caused by a bacterium, Borrelia burgdorferi, 
it's transmitted by black-legged ticks. You seen one of these things? They're small. These ticks are tiny. The nymphs are about a millimeter in size. A millimeter in size. And that's why the nymphs are much more likely to actually give you a line because you won't feel them when they bite you. They are minuscule. The adults, they get Lyme and they transmit Lyme, but you're much more likely to notice them when they're on your skin. And so my daughter, I don't remember her having a tick bite. Nobody noticed it. And we did tick checks. She got Lyme. Right? So this is a disease that you will pick up in the spring and summer. And that's when your patients are going to present. This is a spring and summer disease in endemic regions. And where are the endemic regions? Well, in the States, you got to have those black-legged ticks. And they live in the East Coast and in the Midwest of the United States. Right? And we all know, especially this border for some reason, it doesn't keep people out very well. Right? So it's gonna, the ticks will cross, and they will show up here. And so will the rodents and the deer. There are also West Coast black-legged ticks, Iotes pacificus. And again, this border is meaningless to them. And so is it in Canada? Absolutely, it's in Canada. We are an endemic area for Lyme disease. We need to make that diagnosis. And the incidence in the United States is rising and known to be underreported. The CDC suspects that we're about an order of magnitude off in the diagnoses because these are just reported cases. And when they actually look at ICD codes and outpatient lab surveys, they think that's probably in the order of 300,000 cases annually in the U.S., it's a lot of Lyme. And so it's up to us to make that diagnosis. And how are you going to make the diagnosis? Well, the key is going to be that erythema migrans rash. That's the key. That's the most common presentation. You, you know, about two, three quarters of the time, maybe a little bit more, they will present with erythema migrans, fever, flu-like illness, and erythema migrans. But erythema migrans can sometimes be tricky. It's not always that beautiful bullseye annular rash with clearing. It's not all, it doesn't always look that way. Sometimes it can just present as an erythematous patch with diffuse margins. Sometimes it can be an erythematous patch with a scab in the middle where the tick bit you. Or you can get disseminated erythema migrans. You can have multiple patches. All of those are erythema migrans. They need treatment. Because if you can treat it early, they won't move on to get disseminated Lyme disease. Treatment is excellent. It cures people. But sometimes they'll present in your department with disseminated Lyme. Common presentations, neurologic. The most common neurologic presentation for disseminated Lyme is going to be an acute peripheral neuropathy, a nerve palsy. And the most common one of those, we see it all the time. Right? Seventh nerve palsy. So seventh nerve palsy that presents in the summer, especially if they've had a history of a tick bite or a recent febrile illness, you should at least consider Lyme disease in the differential. Because we see a lot of these, right? You should consider it. We are now an endemic region. If they present with bilateral seventh nerve palsies, they've got Lyme disease probably. Not much else causes that. Lyme can also present as meningitis. So patients who present with aseptic meningitis in the summer especially if you've got a history of tick bites or a lot of outdoor work, <coughs> Lyme disease should be on your differential. So you can send off titers. Disseminated Lyme can present as carditis. They will present with AV blocks, right? Sometimes third-degree blocks, Mobitz-type blocks, but sometimes just really long first-degree blocks, right? Really long first-degree blocks, 300 milliseconds. Consider Lyme in those young patients with no other reason to have a heart block. Consider Lyme, send off titers. If they present with a super long first degree block, they've had a tick bite, they've had Lyme, they need to be admitted. Because a third of those patients, even when they just have a first degree heart block, a long first degree block, they go on to have a complete heart block. They need to be admitted. And some will present with oligoarthritis or monoarthritis, big effusions usually, usually in the large joints, and sometimes months after their tick bite, unfortunately. So these are tough. These are tough to diagnose and even tougher to treat. And again, much of the key is going to be around time of year. So if you see a flu-like illness in the summer, you've got to plant the seed. This may be Lyme disease. This may be other things. Ask about tick bites. 
ask about high-risk populations, people like me who spend a lot of time outdoors and doing stupid things and hiking and dragging their, their kids through the wilderness, they get Lyme disease because we get tick bites, right? All right, quick review of when to suspect Lyme and the different presentations. So when to think of Lyme? Well, we see tons of flu in the winter, but if a patient who's been spending a lot of time outdoors comes in with a flu-like illness in the spring or summer, especially if they have a rash, and especially if that rash is the typical erythema migrans bullseye rash, you got to think of Lyme. Don't forget that the Lyme rash can also be just an erythematous patch or even multiple erythematous patches or an erythematous patch with a little scab in the middle from where the tick bit them. Next, I love the pearl that for every patient who presents with the seventh nerve palsy, which we see so commonly, if it's in the spring or summer, think about Lyme. And if that seventh nerve palsy is bilateral, it's almost pathognomonic for Lyme's disease. Well, what about other presentations of Lyme disease? So other presentations to think about Lyme in are aseptic meningitis, so send off CSF for Lyme, and also monoarthritis as well as carditis. Now, the big pearl when it comes to carditis is that all patients with a really long first-degree heart block, like more than 300 milliseconds, with a clinical picture consistent with Lyme, should be admitted because a big chunk of them go on to complete heart block. A patient who you suspect has carditis is the one situation where a first-degree AV block is not a benign condition. Next, let's hear what Dr. Summer has to say about testing for Lyme. There's a lot of controversy about Lyme. It's in the media. Why the big controversy? What's the problem? Well, part of the problem is people will tell you that the testing isn't sensitive enough to pick up Lyme disease. There's an element of truth in that. Because when they present early with erythema migrans, which is your best opportunity to treat them, their testing will be negative. Their testing will be negative when they present early. If they present just with erythema migrans, you got to treat them clinically because the bacterium is slow growing and the test that we do is an IgG or an IgM and sometimes we haven't mounted that immune response enough for a positive test. There's no test of cure. So if you're IgG positive, you're probably going to have some element of IgG positivity for life. So there's no test of cure. So people will say, I got treated for Lyme disease, but my test is still positive. So I still have Lyme disease. Not true. And there is something called post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. So patients who've had Lyme disease, especially disseminated Lyme disease, can feel sick for months or even years afterwards with no ongoing infection. And they can have very nebulous symptoms, muscle aches, fatigues, difficulty concentrating. These are tough patients to treat but we know that they do not benefit from repeat antibiotics, long courses of IV antibiotics. There's no benefit. And so these are tough cases for sure. And again, standard Lyme disease testing is sensitive, but not in the first couple of weeks of infection. And so if they have disseminated Lyme, Lyme neuritis, Lyme carditis, Lyme arthritis, they should be positive for IgG. But if they just present with erythema migrans, treat them clinically. Send off the serology, even if it's negative, you did the right thing. And you can do convalescent testing a couple weeks later. All right, next little review. What about testing for Lyme? Who needs to be tested? Well, if a patient presents with the classic erythema migraines rash, you can send off Lyme titers, but the titers will be negative at this early stage in the illness. So you need to treat on spec. Follow-up here is so key. Make sure titers are sent off in a couple of weeks after their presentation, when they're much more likely to be positive. And the thing that sucks about Lyme testing is that once you're positive, you're positive for life. Even if your patient's asymptomatic, or even if your patient has vague symptoms that last for months that they attribute to Lyme, the titers will be positive, and treatment at this point is useless. In other words, there's no test of cure. All right, let's move on now to treatment of acute Lyme. Right, and what's the treatment? Most of us know it's doxycycline. Doxycycline is first-line treatment. It's curative. It works. And usual treatment duration, there's actually evidence to suggest that 10 days may be adequate, but most guidelines will suggest two to three weeks of treatment with doxycycline. In children, amoxicillin or cefuroxime 
If they're allergic, then macrolides are absolutely second-line agents because they do have treatment failures. So if you could give them doxy, that's the best. Now, some of those patients with that kind of nebulous erythema migraines that just looks like a patch, sometimes it can be a little bit tender. Do they have cellulitis? Do they have erythema migraines? If you're not sure, then amoxclav is probably a reasonable approach to take because it will treat both. If they present with you know, known Lyme disease, I got treated for Lyme, or I, thought, I think I had Lyme, and they have a nerve palsy, then they probably need parenteral antibiotics, so ceftriaxone or Penji. There's a lot of good European information. They have a different species of Lyme than we do. They often will treat with oral doxy, but in North America, most patients will get parenteral antibiotics. And unfortunately, that won't make them get better faster from their nerve palsy. It's still going to take a little bit of time. Lyme carditis patients, they need to be admitted for monitoring. So they're going to get parenteral antibiotics. And Lyme arthritis is a tough nut to crack. They still get treatment with doxycycline first line. But sometimes these guys do benefit from second or third treatments. And some of them, unfortunately, will have a trigger to autoimmune type arthritis. So they never get 100% better. So this is a tough nut to crack. This is what we want to prevent by treating that erythema migraines early. That's the goal. Now what about that guy, that gardener, who presents with a tick bite? What do you do with him? Anyone ever taken off a tick before? All right, lots of us, right? We see this all the time. So first thing you do, you got to take off the tick, right? So how do you do that? You got to make sure that you grab its head, because if you grab its body and it's had a blood meal and you squirt that blood back into the patient, you're going to give them that Borrelia. You don't want to do that. So grab the head and you pull up. And these suckers are tough. They're barbed and they're tough to get out sometimes. But you want to get out as much of that tick as possible, because you can even have a little bit of bacterium on that barb. Just get out as much as you can. If you can get the whole thing out, that's ideal. Uh, surgical forceps work just fine, I find. And you, you identify that tick as a black-legged tick, but do you prophylax them? You know, there, there are a few options. You could say, you have a tick bite, watch and see if you get the rash or if you feel bad in the next week. It's not unreasonable. Or you can treat full course for Lyme disease, 14 days of treatment. It's also not unreasonable. Or you can give single-dose doxycycline, 200 milligrams. So there's good evidence to suggest that that's a pretty reasonable, to do in most, reasonable thing to do in most people. So the number needed to treat in a Lyme endemic region, which we all now live in, is about 50. And that's just to prevent erythema migraines. That's not to present, prevent disseminated Lyme. Right? <laughs> Your number needed to treat for disseminated Lyme is about 160. So it's still pretty reasonable. Pretty reasonable. I think I would want it. Uh, if they come in with a tick that looks more like big and full of blood, an engorged tick, then your number needed to treat drops to 11. Because that means they've, they've shared a little blood with you. All right, so definitely give those at least a single dose of doxy. Now one of the problems is, uh, what do you do for kids? They can't get the doxy, right? So you can give them amoxicillin, but the guidelines state that you can't just give them a single dose of amoxicillin. You give them a full treatment dose, 10 days at least, 10 days at least. Um, and this engorgement does make a difference, right? So if that tick has been on for less than a day, the likelihood of Lyme transmission is actually very low. It's very low. So the, this is in ticks with known Borrelia in their gut. The probability of transmission really starts to rise at 24 or 36 hours. And less than that, the risk is quite low. That's a reasonable time to have a discussion with the patient about shared decision-making. Again, if it were me, I'd probably just take the doxy. All right, so let's review treatment here. And let's go from the most benign to the most severe presentations. So starting with the most benign, if a patient comes in with a tick and you remove it, you've got options. First option, no meds, and just instruct the patient to look out for a flu-like illness or rash. The second option is to treat with a full course of antibiotics, which we'll detail for you in a sec. And the third option is just one dose of doxycycline, 200 milligrams. All right, so next on the road from benign to most severe presentations is the patient who presents with an erythema migraines rash. The number needed to treat in an endemic area to prevent erythema migraines after a tick bite is 50. And the number needed to treat for disseminated Lyme is 160. And if the tick is engorged with blood, the number needed to treat is as low as 11. 
Of course, all this depends on how long the tick's been on the skin, because the probability of Lyme starts to rise only after 24 hours. So let's talk drugs. If they present with acute Lyme, the drug of choice is doxycycline. So doxy for 10 days to three weeks is your go-to drug for Lyme. But there's two things you got to remember about doxy. One is that it's recommended to be avoided in children eight years old or younger. So use amoxin kids. And second, the patients can get photosensitivity reactions with doxy. And since you'll be giving doxy out in the summer for these patients, they should be instructed to keep their skin protected from the sun. Another great pearl is that if you're not sure if the rash is erythema migraines or cellulitis, give a mox clav, which will cover both. And for any of the complications of Lyme, carditis, arthritis, meningitis, etc., give IV antibiotics. So to wrap up Lyme, really the big message is Lyme is spreading around North America and Europe. So find out if Lyme is endemic in your region and keep an eye out for it. Early diagnosis is critical to prevent disseminated Lyme, and treatment of acute Lyme is very effective. Next, we're going to hear from Chris Hicks talk about his approach to sign over. So tell me if this sounds familiar. You're coming on shift, and your colleague that is signing out to you has just got beat up for eight hours. And they sit down at the chair and they go, oh, jeez. Um, okay. Um, bed one is medicine. Bed two is uh, neurology. Bed three, um, admitted before my time, I'm not sure what. Bed four is new. Bed five, I just need you to check the CT head, and then if they can walk, they can go home. Bed six, um, anyone know, who knows bed, anyone know bed six? All right, I'll tell you a bit about six in a second. Bed seven, uh, before my time. Bed eight is empty. Well, that's not true. Nobody has empty beds. False. Um, and that's how your signover is conducted. Anyone ever conducted signover like that? I certainly have. You just got your ass kicked for eight hours, and you kind of want to get out of there. Uh, well, I think that's a problem with listening. And signover behavior is a more complicated set of acts than I think we give it credit for. And the theory behind this is a bit complicated. I don't want to go too far into it, but I think we look at sign-over behavior by and large as in transfer of information. I is the doc going off. I'm going to tell you, the doc coming on, what needs to be done. But it really isn't just that. It's part that, but there are these metacognitive elements to it too. Sense-making, uh, what's called a co-orientation, where you have a bit of a discussion about a patient so that the two of you, uh, as the incoming outgoing doctor, can kind of get on the same footing with what the real nature of the case is. So for example... Uh, bed six is a trauma patient with a pelvic fracture. Oh, uh, did they require a lot of uh, massive transfusion? No, we wrapped their pelvis, they got TXA, and they stabilized, so we're just waiting for interventional now. That's a co-orientation, right? That's the two of you as practitioners getting on the same page, not just with the diagnosis, but the severity and the expected outcomes, the expected next steps. We had a few critical incidents around over at our hospital. We all know these are high-risk events. Transitions of care are always high-risk. And I presented a few years back uh, some strategies for how our institution can improve our signover culture. This is a quick look at what we propose and what I think can make signover etiquette better and make you better listeners. So the tip that Dr. Hicks is going to start with for making signover a better process is to find a physical space in your ED where distractions are likely to be minimal. We do signover right at the desk most of the time where everyone else is and where we do our work. And I think that's a mistake. This also goes along with the notion of the sterile cockpit concept for signover. That is to say, this is a below 10,000 feet moment. Interruptions, phone calls, non-urgent lab uh, results, um, uh, evaluations of house staff. They can wait, and they should. This is a sterile cockpit moment where you and your team are communicating only about signover. Unless something critical happens, it needs to be culturally understood that that's all that's happening for that five or 10 minutes. The next tip after retreating to a less chaotic area to conduct signover that Dr. Hicks is going to talk about is involving the entire team rather than just a doc-to-doc signover. If at all possible, the charge or lead nurse for that day should be present and contribute to signover as well as all the trainees. For the life of me, I can't understand why docs and nurses sign over separately. Um, and we do it. To add to the insanity in our major area in the morning, our nurses switch over at 7.30. By the time they're done, our docs come on at 8. 
minutes after they're done their sign over, and we just do it completely separately. And a, a mentor of mine in medical education, Simon Carley, had said, there is no doctor knowledge and nursing knowledge, there's just knowledge. And I think that's very true. There are nurse-specific management issues and there are doc-specific management issues, but they really need to go together. And the number of times I said, um, bed six is just having breakfast and they can go home, and the nurses have just told one another, bed six can't get up and ambulate. Those two things need to be put together in the sign-over plan. So I don't always do this. I'm trying to get better at remembering to do it, but bring docs and nurses together, even just a, ideally a charge nurse or a lead nurse uh, who knows the area, and have them participatory in the sign-over process. The third tip after retreating to a less chaotic area of your ED and involving the team is start with the most important bottom line data. In other words, talk about the sickest patients and the key time-dependent information that needs to be conveyed first. This uh, concept is consistent with the NASA notion of bottom-lining information. So you just give a bottom line on the priority data first. Minimizes the chances of you being interrupted. Um, and how this would look would just be, uh, I, I, and I do wonder about this too, in a sort of 18-bed department, why you have to start with bed one and finish with bed 18. What this would look like is, I'm going to start with bed five because bed five is pretty sick and septic and they have a few important outstanding issues that I want you to know about. And then we'll come back and talk about everyone else. Signover doesn't need to be a linear process. And I think the most critical or time-dependent data needs to be discussed first. Next up are the three A's, administrative issues, anticipate, and action items. I'll let Dr. Hicks explain. Part of the problem with scripting Sanover too heavily is this notion of information transfer that it limits your ability to co-orient. So if you just gave like an SBAR or a written report on a template, that's not a two-way discussion of information. One of the reasons I like the three A's is it avoids really rigid verbal scripting, but it still allows for some sort of structure around how you provide signovers. So administrative issues like this is what's outstanding, this is what we need to look at. Anticipated clinical events, this patient is stabilized, they're getting sicker, this is what I think medicine is going to do. Um, and then action items, this is what I need you to do coming on to take over. Those are the three A's. And it gives the process a little bit of structure without it being too rigidly scripted. And then finally, the fifth and last tip is to close the loop. And the way closing the loop works is by the receiving doc stating back the critical data. And then finally, this is one that I see uh, pretty well done, and I've seen it role modeled by a lot of my effective signover mentors. And that is to say, after the signover is complete, to sort of close that loop on core orientation, the person who's taking signover says, okay, so just to double check, bed three needs an ultrasound, bed seven, oh, we're just following up a CT scan, and bed 12, if they can walk, um, they can be discharged. Because the number of times I've done that and the person signing over to me says, don't forget about that person who's in minor who just needs a second troponin. And I go, right, thank you. So that readback process kind of closes that co-orientation loop and makes sure that you've sort of shared metacognitive elements that you might have otherwise missed. So again, the five tips of effective sign over are one, retreat to a less chaotic area. Two, involve the team. Three, Start with the most important bottom line data. Four are the A's. Administration issues, anticipate the results of tests and disposition, and action items. And then finally, five is close the loop. Now, once signover is done, it's helpful to then do a post-signover review in the chart and with the patients. So document on the chart the assessment and plan and inform the patients of the plan so that everyone's on the same page. Next, Matt Pointer gives a very practical approach to dealing with patient complaints. The reason why I'm here is because I have my own laundry list of, uh, of patient complaints, and I remember every single one because they bothered me so much. I'm going to tell you about my worst one. 
Happened about 10 years ago now. I was a relatively new eMERGE doc, and I was just working a normal shift, and I saw what I thought was a very normal patient. It's a 60-year-old woman who came in with a headache, and she didn't have any neurological signs. I didn't see any red flags, actually. So I treated her headache, and she got better, uh, and I sent her home. And unfortunately, she returned the next day when I wasn't working and saw one of my colleagues with a huge ischemic stroke. And so I got a complaint letter from her daughter, actually, because her stroke was so bad that she couldn't write her own letter. And I was upset. You know, I was upset that this had happened, um, but I was also upset because I knew I'd done my best, and I still got this vitriolic complaint letter. And so I reviewed the case with our eMERGE group, and then I felt kind of reassured because nobody said that they would have done anything different than I did. And so I wrote a response letter. I didn't really know it at the time, but it was actually a fairly typical response letter that a physician would write. When something like this, I saw your mother on such and such a day, she presented in this way. I did A, B, and C. I've even reviewed the case with our eMERGE group. Unfortunately, it looks like your mother's stroke was completely unpredictable. And I didn't hear anything for a while. And then a couple of months later, I arrived for another shift. And before I'd even started, I was served papers saying that I was being sued. And then I spent the next three years dealing with that very unpleasant process. And I'm now 100% convinced that I could have avoided that lawsuit altogether if I had just responded properly to that patient complaint. So... I'm not here because I'm particularly good at avoiding patient complaints, and I'm also not here because I'm particularly good at handling them on a personal level. You know, those ones that you can see coming from a mile away, so you make sure you do everything right, so you're completely beyond reproach because you know they're going to complain anyway. Even those ones bug the hell out of me still. So over the years, I've come to think of patient complaints kind of like difficult airways. And if you stick with me for a second, I think you'll realize that they actually have a lot in common. Because we hope that they're going to be rare. But the prospect, even if you don't get one in the next shift or the next month or even the next year, the prospect of going in and working a shift without being prepared for that possibility is kind of nerve-wracking. It makes our jobs a lot harder. And the truth is that most airway situations actually go just fine. The truly difficult ones happen once in a blue moon. Whereas I think it's safe to say that all patient complaints suck. And most of us in this room will get at least one or two this year alone. So I don't know about you guys, but uh, I wasn't really taught anything about how to deal with patient complaints. And so when I got one, it was upsetting and I was anxious because I didn't really know what to do. I did not know that I could make things better, but I was definitely afraid of making things worse. And I did make things worse on more than one occasion. And so it took, maybe I'm a slow learner, but it took me about 10 years to figure out that nobody was going to fill this educational gap for me. And so I took it on myself to learn as much as I could, and mostly I learned from messing up and then trying to get better the next time. Uh, And then more recently, I've made a more concerted effort to learning kind of the ins and outs of these things. Why do we get complaints? You know, what? how should we respond to them? And I'm very happy to tell you guys that dealing with patient complaints is actually a heck of a lot easier than dealing with difficult airways. And uh, I'm going to try to make it uh, easier on you guys by by breaking it down into a simple four-step process. But before we get to that, we're going to talk about the reasons, four reasons why we get patient complaints. And we're also going to talk about the uh, the four blunders that we as physicians often make when uh, uh, responding to patient complaints. So first, the reasons for patient complaints. Dr. Pointer is going to talk about attitude, communication, access to care, and quality of care. Normally when a patient complains, they actually complain and kind of touch on some or even all these things because when people are upset, they're just upset about everything. But it's useful to understand uh, kind of where they do come from. So patient complaints generally fall into four categories. Those about attitude of the physician, communication issues with the physician, not getting access to care that they felt entitled to, uh, and lastly, uh, issues around quality of care. So we're going to talk about each of these briefly. So what patients care most about is our attitude. They don't care how super smart you are. 
uh, you did a fellowship at the Mayo Clinic, that you're so skilled, you know, you can reduce a shoulder with one arm and do an LP with the other one at the same time. Truthfully, they probably don't even really care that you might have just come from another room resuscitating a child. They need to feel like you care the most about them at that particular point in time. So if you're the kind of physician who stands in the doorway with kind of one foot in and one foot out, head buried in the chart, you know, not making eye contact, constantly interrupting them, then you're probably going to get more than your fair share of complaints. In fact, there's more complaints initiated because of the perception anyway that we have a negative or condescending attitude than for any other reason. Next up after attitude is communication with the patient. I do highly recommend that you go back to two episodes that have made probably the biggest impact on my practice, which is episode 49, Effective Patient Communication, Patient-Centered Care and Patient Satisfaction, and episode 51, which is entitled Effective Patient Communication, Managing Difficult Patients. That being said, let's hear what Dr. Pointer has to say about communication, access to care, and quality of care in terms of the reasons for patient complaints. Communication. So good communication in the emergency department just starts with those basic social niceties that are unfortunately so easy for us to forget in the chaos of the emergency department when we're fatigued and distracted already. You know, walking into a room and introducing yourself to everybody there, shaking hands, making eye contact, finding a place to sit down. Even if it's just on the corner of the bed for 30 seconds, studies show that patients perceive that to be four or five minutes. And responding with at least a little bit of empathy. I mean, God knows, we can't always muster 100% sincere empathy, but our patients do deserve an effort. The other part of good communication, I think, is orienting patients to what's happening in the emergency department. Because even though it's a place that we've become accustomed to and fairly comfortable with, for most of our patients, it's a very disorienting and uncomfortable place to be. So just taking a minute to explain where they're going to go for their lab work or their x-ray, that you're going to come back and talk to them again and come up with a plan. If you're going to admit them, tell them why you're admitting them. If you're going to send them home, what should they expect to happen over the next couple of days and reasons to come back to the emergency department. The next reason for patient complaints after attitude and communication issues is access to care. So the truth is, some patients want things that we can't give them. You know, they want shorter wait times, they want an MRI of their stubbed toe, or they want a refill of another controlled substance. You know, it's not that we should always give patients what they want. Of course, we shouldn't. That'll just land us in a different kind of trouble. But we should talk to patients about what the reasonable options are and why. And it's okay to apologize for the things that we can't control, like shorter wait times and access to MRIs for non-urgent problems. And last reason we get patient complaints, quality of care. So, uh, so this, is, uh, this is tricky. Quality of care issues usually stem from the perception that, you know, if the doctor had just done this, then this bad thing wouldn't have happened to me. But it's more complicated than that. We all know that even the best care in the emergency department can sometimes lead to bad outcomes. And even the worst care in the emergency department sometimes has no consequence whatsoever. And so these things can be difficult to predict. But when they do happen, there are definitely ways that we can minimize the pain and the hardship that they create. So those were the four reasons for patient complaints. Problems with attitude, issues with communication, access to care, and quality of care. Next, Dr. Pointer is going to explain what the patient really wants to hear from you after they complain. So how should we respond to patient complaints? I can tell you what the patients want. Helen Gibson was the head of our patient relations department at Lake Ridge Health for close to two decades. And in one of my meetings with her, she said something that really stuck with me, which is that pretty much every phone call or email that she got initiating a patient complaint always ended in the same way. They said that they just didn't want it to happen to anybody else. So what the patients want is an acknowledgement of their experience and their suffering and some kind of assurance that steps will be taken to minimize the chance of it happening again. Now contrast this to what we want. We usually, our gut reaction, we usually want to defend ourselves. You know, we usually want to convince the person who's complaining that in spite of their perception of events, we actually did what was right and reasonable given the information that we had at the time. But I think if we take a step back 
There's something that we want even more than that, which is just to make it go away. And the best way to make a complaint go away is to find a resolution that's satisfactory to both sides. Because the truth is, by the time a patient has made a complaint, we've got more to lose than they do. So if you want to know how we come across a lot of the time when left to our own devices and when responding to patient complaints is kind of like Spock from Star Trek, kind of cold and impersonal. We'll usually give a technical recounting of events and a rationalization of the care that we gave. And you may think that that's less than ideal, and it is, but it could be worse because here's the four blunders, the face palms that physicians often do. Number one, poor preparation. I think there's a temptation to kind of sweep these things under the rug as quickly as possible. So there's the temptation not to review the chart in detail. But the problem is if you don't review the chart in detail, you may make factual errors in your response. And that will undermine your credibility, and that is the fast track towards escalation of that complaint. Number two, failure to acknowledge the pain and suffering of the patient. Again, I think this is understandable because there's this perception that if we acknowledge the pain and the suffering of the patient, that's the same thing as accepting responsibility for it. And that is just not true. Third, having a defensive rather than a reflective tone. Again, it's understandable because our professional pride is hurt by these things. And lastly, kind of missing that step of providing some assurance that steps will be taken to improve. So by now, you're probably getting a pretty good idea of what a, uh, what a good response looks like. But I'm going to try to make it even easier by uh, giving you a, a simple mnemonic that I hope is easy to remember because I think whether you're good or bad at responding to these things reflects that complaints are always a pain in the butt. So our mnemonic is not butt, it's pain. So P-A-I-N, N, prepare, apologize, inform, and next steps. Okay, preparation. We've already talked about preparation in terms of making sure you review the chart in detail. Um, But this is also about emotional preparation. It's probably too soon to respond to a patient complaint the same day you get one. You're probably going to be too emotional, come off as too reactive. So sleep on it for a night or two. But what the more common problem is, actually, is we tend to procrastinate these things. And if you leave a complaint to fester for weeks on end, then uh, there's a, a much greater chance of it escalating. A is apologize. So I realize that this is probably the hardest part about responding well to a patient complaint. But it's also the most important. So apologizing does not always mean that you're saying that they're right and you're wrong. It's just sending a message that you value your profession more than your ego. So you can apologize for the patient's suffering. I'm sorry this happened to you. And that is not the same thing as taking responsibility for that outcome. You can apologize that their expectations were not met. And that says nothing about whether their expectations were reasonable to begin with. Apologizing sets a tone of empathy. Now, on the other hand, if there was an obvious way that you could have done better, if you did make a mistake, not only is it the law that you disclose that, by the way, but it's actually even more important to apologize. It's in your best interest, and I'll tell you why in a minute. I is for inform. So a lot of times patients complain because they just don't understand why things went down the way they did. So you need to take this opportunity to explain what you did and why you did it. And most complaints will also come with a list of issues or questions. And so you need to go through those one by one and address every single one. I also take the opportunity to follow the first rule of writing, which is that the audience doesn't know what you don't tell them. So I just say explicitly that I care about what happened to them, because I do. And I care about the quality of medicine that I practice in the, in the emergency department. I just put that right out there explicitly. So we've got preparation, apology, inform. Last is next steps. We've already talked about this. You know, we need to commit to improving in some way. You need to include this part. So that could be just be as simple as putting a sentence in there saying that you're going to discuss the case with your eMERGE group so that other people can learn from the, from the, uh, from the experience. Or, you know, maybe you're going to read up on a particularly rare diagnosis. Or if it's appropriate, maybe you could ask their permission to present the case at M&M rounds or something like that. 
But in some way, you need to, need to give that, that assurance. We've got to remember what they want is acknowledgement of their experience and their suffering and some kind of assurance that steps are going to be taken. Contrast this to what we want once we get past our defensiveness. What we want is to just resolve the issue with as little pain and hardship as possible and maybe even learn something from it and become a better doctor. But there's common ground here. You know, both of us want a resolution. And the best way to take one giant step towards that resolution is by providing that explanation and apology. And there's studies that show very, very clearly that providing an explanation and apology does decrease lawsuits, even in in the case of a medical error. In fact, there was a study done just a a couple of years ago, uh, published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, that showed that lawsuits were cut in half after doctors were legally allowed to disclose their mistakes to patients. And other studies have been done showing that just about half of plaintiffs said that they wouldn't have even sued in the first place if they had just received an apology and an explanation at the time. So patients don't want to sue us. They don't want to complain about us. And we, of course, don't want to be sued or or get complaints. But they do it in order to obtain that apology and explanation. So if we're going to put on our rose-colored glasses, maybe how we should view hospital-level complaints is really an opportunity to resolve an issue before it escalates to the courts or the college. Dr. Pointer wraps it up so nicely at the end here. I'm just going to let him do it. I hope that understanding where complaints come from, the common themes of attitude, Communication, access to care, and quality care will help us maybe avoid complaints in the first place. Understanding the common blunders that we make uh, will help us avoid those when we're responding. And then more specifically, going through preparation, finding a way to apologize, inform, and next steps will help us form our responses better. Because we are all getting complaints. That is just the nature of our business. We need to expect that they're coming, just like difficult airways. But that doesn't mean that we need to feel terrified of them and unprepared for them. Thanks. Love that talk. Thank you, Dr. Pointer. Now, I kind of saved the best for last, but before we get on to the last talk, I just wanted to let you know about a conference coming up in October. It's October 26th and 27th in Toronto. It's the Hospital for Sick Children's PEM Conference. That's Pediatric Emergency Medicine Conference with great speakers, some of whom have been on EM cases, like Anthony Crocco, Jason Fisher, Sue Benno, and Kathy Budis. So I hope to see you there. And the other quick announcement is that in September, I'm going to be sending out a survey to all the EM Cases newsletter subscribers that I would be so grateful if you could just take five minutes to fill out. Now, if you aren't an EM Cases newsletter subscriber, please go now to the EM Cases site and just click on the newsletter button. So I've received lots of great feedback from individual listeners, but after eight years of doing EM cases, we've actually never sent out a proper survey to get some more robust feedback so that we can make it better for you. The EM cases team is looking for every which way that we can make all the EM cases resources better. We'll be giving away a free prize that you'll automatically be entered to win, and I promise that your responses will go a long way towards improving EM cases so that ultimately you can take better care of your patients. Okay, back to the 30th annual EMU conference highlights, Vertigo. Now we've covered Vertigo before in episodes 45 with Stuart Swadron and way back in episode six, but Himmel just hits it out of the park this time around, driving home some subtle but really important pitfalls in the assessment, workup, and disposition of patients who present to the ED with Vertigo. Take it away, Walter. The two things I discovered in the last 41 years as an emergency doctor. Number one, this will be obvious to you, I am going bald. (laughs) Number two, I discovered Viagra causes headaches and dizziness, but never vertigo or nystagmus. And this is important. First of all, I've validated this many times. Secondly, I'm not here to discuss a bit of dizziness, lightheadedness, syncope. 
We know what to do about that. I'm here to discuss vertigo that kills and what you can do about it. There's only one question you have to answer with every patient who's got vertigo. Number one, are they staying or are they going home? Number two, if they're staying, they are getting imaging. If they're going home, probably not. There's an exception. And number three, if they're staying, you're treating your symptoms, you've got one important role to play, one important role only. Are they having a stroke or not? I guarantee you 100% certainty that you will see vertigo and it's really a stroke presenting as vertigo. And how will you tell the difference? Now, of course, older people with vertigo are at risk of a stroke from atherosclerosis. But what are young people doing with vertigo who's having strokes? These are the ones you've got to worry about. Young people get strokes. One quarter of strokes young people are caused by what? Vertebral artery dissections, cervical artery dissections. Young people get strokes. If they get a vertebral artery dissection, it'll present as vertigo and it may not be recognizable the first day. But a couple of days later, they'll come back, often stroked out. There's only three diseases you have to really know about. Benign paroxysmal, additional vertigo. Those people will be fine. Vestibular urinitis, also called vestibular neuritis or labyrinthitis. And a stroke or a TIA. Vestibular neuritis or neuritis or labyrinthitis and stroke rate is called acute vestibular syndrome. I'm here to talk about acute vestibular syndrome. Timing in life, timing in love, timing is everything. Benign paroxysmal positional vertigo is the commonest cause of significant vertigo. It's overdiagnosed and it's underdiagnosed. And here's what BPPV is. You're perfectly fine. You're all over in bed. Boom, you get vertiginous. It lasts a minute and it's over. You may feel crummy, you may feel not hot, but it's over. You roll over again. Boom, you get vertiginous. It lasts a minute and it's over. Then you can walk and greet your physician or your nurse and answer questions. That's BPPV. It's paroxysmal. Comes and it goes. Now, the patient never says I was vertiginous for a minute. They say I've been dizzy for six hours. What they really mean is I turn my head, boom, I get vertigo, then I feel crummy. I turn my head, boom, I get vertigo, then I'm crummy. History's everything. Once you diagnose BPV, you can treat it, you cannot treat it, they'll do fine. Why is that important? Because that's a lot of patients, and you can stop worrying about those people. Now, vestibular neuritis and stroke, they give you continuous uninterrupted vertigo for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. If they move, it's always worse. All vertigo is made worse with movement, but with BPPV, it only occurs with movement. With vestibular neuritis or stroke, called the acute vestibular syndrome, the vertigo is continuous hour after hour after hour, unless it's a TAA, in which case it'll be hours. So movement makes it worse, but it's continuous. Acute vestibular syndrome, that's what I'm talking about. 24 hours of vertigo, nausea, vomiting, movement intolerance, nystagmus. Your eyes move slowly and zoop, slowly and zoop. Unsteady gait. If a patient complains of dizziness and it sounds like vertigo and it's continuous and they have movement intolerance and they have nystagmus and unsteady gait, you've got to ask the following questions. Is this a stroke? It's called acute vestibular syndrome. And here's a shocking piece of information. 25% of these patients have had a stroke, young and old. I'm not talking about the Viagra-induced dizziness. I'm talking about presyncope. I'm talking about vertigo, movement intolerance, and nystagmus. One quarter have had a stroke. Which quarter is that? And now I'm going to tell you a story. This changed my life. 38-year-old golfer, completed 18 holes of golf, Sudden onset of vertigo, nausea, and vomiting. What does every neurologist tell you? How do you diagnose a stroke? Sudden. Stroke means a stroke from God. Whack! Strokes come on in one or two or three seconds. That's why it's called a stroke. The moment you get the timing of suddenly, be careful. She was severely unsteady. Now, we know all vertiginous patients are unsteady. When you've got vestibular neuritis, you're unsteady like... Two beers. 
you've got a stroke, you need help to walk. Anybody who's had a sudden onset of vertigo which needs help to walk, be very careful. You're probably dealing with a stroke or an unbelievably bad case of vestibular urinitis. But start thinking, this could be a stroke. This patient had no headache and no neck pain. Why must you always ask about a headache? If someone's got a bad headache, worry about a cerebellar bleed, they get a CT scan. If someone's got neck pain, neck pain and vertical, that's a vertebral artery section. They get a CTA or MRA immediately. Always ask about neck pain and headache. Now, fake news goes back many, many years. Back when I was in medical school, I was exposed to lots of fake news. Here's what I was told in medical school. Isolated vertigo does not exist as a stroke. If it's isolated vertigo, it's peripheral. If it's a stroke, you have to have many other symptoms. If you're the best neurologist in the universe and you're going to do a one-hour neurological examination, that may be true. But I'm here to tell you, half of vertiginous strokes have isolated vertigo and mild disturbance, nothing else. I was taught about the five Ds. Have you been taught about the five Ds? I was taught if you have vertigo, you've got to have diplopia, dysarthria, dysphonia, dysphagia, or dysmetria. If you have those, it's a stroke. If you haven't got those, it's not a stroke. Absolutely not true. Ataxia, gait disturbance. If you've got truncal ataxia and you can't sit up in bed and you're vertiginous, if you get up and you're holding onto walls and have to be held and you're vertiginous, you're probably dealing with a stroke. Be super careful with these patients. So back to our golfer. It came on suddenly. She was vertiginous. She had none of the Ds, but she couldn't stand up and she couldn't sit up. And she had nystagmus. So what are you thinking? What's, what are the possibilities here? Labyrinthitis or is it a stroke? A young person. Do young people get strokes? Yes, young people get strokes. So I examined her. She had spontaneous nystagmus, which meant as she looked forward, her eyes were going slowly in one direction and zoomed back. Slowly in one direction and zoomed back. Her nystagmus is right beating. There's two kinds of nystagmus, basically. There's nystagmuses where it always beats the same direction and nystagmus where it beats all over the place. Look to the right, beats to the right. Look to the left, beats to the right. Look up, beats to the right. Unidirectional nystagmus. I was taught with certainty Unidirectional nystagmus is always peripheral. That's what I was taught. Absolutely not true. Unidirectional nystagmus is usually peripheral, but not always. So I examined this young lady. She looked to the right. Her eyes beat to the right. Looked to the left, nothing. I was reassured. That was unidirectional nystagmus. I did a test of skew. I covered one eye, then the other eye, one eye, then the other eye, and if you have skew, it means vertical misalignment. Your eyes go up and down, up and down like that. If you have that, it's a stroke. And if you don't, less likely. Have you heard of the HINS test? Head impulse test, N for nystagmus, T for test of skew. Her nystagmus was unidirectional. That's a peripheral sign. Her test of skew was negative. But you know what the problem is? It's not reliable. The Dix-Halpike test. Have you heard about the Dix-Halpike test? The road to hell is truly paved with the misunderstanding and the misuse of the Dix-Halpike test. If somebody has paroxysmal vertigo, and it's positional, mean only caused by movement, and if they stay perfectly still and the vertigo goes away, then you do the Dix-Halpike test. And you look for two things, an onset of vertigo and vertical rotatory nystagmus. If both aren't present, the test is negative. If somebody has continuous vertigo, do not do the Dix-Halpike test. BPB is off the table. Everybody with continuous vertigo, if you do the Dix-Halpike test, will become vertiginous. And if you think that's a positive test, it is not. A positive test is vertiginous and vertical rotostagmus only in people who have paroxysmal vertigo. Do not do the Dix-Halpike test with the wrong patient. So what's the diagnosis with this patient? I did the Dix-Halpike test, and the person became unbelievably vertiginous. I shouldn't even have done that test. So in a stagmus to review, unidirectional, usually peripheral, but not always. Multidirectional, look to the right, beats to the right, look to the left, the eyes beat to the left, look up, the eyes beat up, always central. Purely vertical, always central. But remember, benign paroxysmal, additional vertigo, 
gives you nystagmus, has vertical rotatory. Only if it's purely vertical is it always central. And skew, vertical malalignment, always central, but you rarely see it. So I got a CT scan of her head. People will tell you with vertigo, a CT scan of the head is a waste of time. Uh, that is generally true. Unless you suspect a cerebral hemorrhage because if it's a severe headache and severe ataxia, then you can get a CT scan, of course. It'll show a bleed very well. This slide will shock you. And as you know, I love to say, if this slide doesn't shock you, you are unshockable. <laughs> the CT scan sensitivity picking up a stroke in the posterior fossa is about 20% in the first 24 hours. Get a CT scan for two things, a hemorrhage and maybe a verbal artery dissection. Everyone thinks the sensitivity of an MRI is 100% for everything. This is completely not true. In the first 24 hours of a stroke, in the posterior fossa, an MRI will miss 10 to 20% of strokes. What's the exception to these investigations? If you suspect a vertebral artery dissection, get a CTA or MRA now. Pain and vertigo and nystagmus. You get that test. So here's our patient in her 30s, three kids, golfer, vertiginous. Now, I said acute vestibular syndrome is supposed to last 24 hours. Well, we don't keep them for 24 hours. Make your decision in about 24 minutes. Make your decisions first hour or two. Nystagmus, can't walk, can't sit up. They're staying in the hospital. They're not going home. After nine hours, she had less nystagmus, and she was less unsteady, and she could walk with a little bit of help. Is this a TIA? Or is this labyrinthitis? What's the diagnosis? Answer the question right now in the next two seconds to yourself. What would you do? What does she have? Unidirectional nystagmus, usually peripheral, but not always, but she couldn't walk. She was ataxic. Not a two-beer ataxia, a 10-beer ataxia. She was better. I sent her home early follow-up with ENT. I do not prefer my vertiginous patients to ENT anymore. They go to the stroke clinic. Unless I'm really sure it's nothing. I have spoken to several ENT doctors, and I said to them, is unidirectional nystagmus always peripheral? I've done a survey, three ENT doctors. Guess what they all said? Yes, it's always peripheral. That is not true, it's not. I went home. The patient returned 48 hours later. Dysphagia, diplopia, dysarthria, numbness left side of her face, numbness the right side of the body, and droopy left lid. Her life was changed forever. The reason vertigo is so important is many of these patients with dissections start off with vertigo. They look like they have labyrinthitis. And a day or two later, the life has changed forever. I'm going to stand here and make a confession. I haven't sued twice for errors in medical diagnosis in the last 10 years. Guess what they both were? Vertebral artery sections. Guess what the age of the people were? 40s. Guess what her symptom was? Vertigo and a bit of unsteadiness, and that's it. But when I got them up to walk, they really couldn't walk. But they improved after a lengthy period of observation. That was the TA they had. And this is a very common event. So you have an MRI over there of this young lady, this golfer. That little white area, that's a stroke in the brainstem. As you can imagine, on a CT scan, nothing would be visible. She had a vertebral artery dissection that was painless. Has 50% of vertebral artery dissections. All right, so much great stuff in there to review. So here we go. First, you have to have a solid diagnosis for every patient with vertigo. Don't discharge a patient with a final diagnosis of just vertigo, because that's not a diagnosis, it's a symptom. You need to take the time to do a thorough history and physical to decide if there's a peripheral or a central cause, and then what the specific diagnosis is. If you can't come up with a specific diagnosis, the patient probably shouldn't be going home. So in vertigo, timing is everything. The vertigo with BPPV lasts for only one or two minutes. That's it. After the one or two minutes of vertigo, they may feel crummy, describing a vague dizziness, but the true vertigo, again, only lasts for a minute or two. On the other hand, the vertigo with vestibular neuritis, or a stroke, lasts for hours. With a TIA, sometimes less, 
but certainly not one minute. Timing is everything. A truly abrupt onset is more likely to be a stroke or a TIA than vestibular neuronitis, so be careful of abrupt onset vertigo. Next, all vertigo, no matter what the cause, is worsened by movement. The big pitfall is to diagnose BPPV just because the vertigo is worse with movement or when you do a Dix Hall pike. BPPV only occurs with movement. If a patient describes a history of lying perfectly still and suddenly gets vertigo, that's not BPPV. Talking about the Dix-Hall Pike, the Dix-Hall Pike test should only be done on patients with a good story for BPPV. And remember that it's only positive when there's a sudden onset of vertigo associated with vertical rotary nystagmus that goes away after a minute or two. Now, this is a classic general emergency medicine rule. If a patient needs help to walk, they probably shouldn't go home. Think more carefully about the possibility of stroke in these patients. Let's talk about exceptions to rules. There's a couple of exceptions to the so-called rules we've learned about distinguishing central versus peripheral vertigo. First, even though the presence of any of the five Ds point to a central cause of vertigo, it's certainly possible to have a central cause like a stroke with isolated vertigo and none of the Ds. Second, even though unidirectional nystagmus points to a peripheral cause, you can have unidirectional nystagmus with a central cause. So, if a patient has head or neck pain plus ongoing vertigo plus nystagmus, they probably need a CT or MR angiogram of the head and neck to rule out a vertebral artery dissection, even if they're young. The scary thing is that up to half of vertebral artery dissections are painless. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone with vertigo needs an angiogram. Since Dr. Himmel gave this talk at EMU and at our hospital rounds, there's been a really big increase in CT angiogram ordering by our ED. Angiograms still need to be done selectively based on the pearls and the misconceptions that we've just reviewed. All right, well, that about wraps it up for this month's episode. I'll leave you with a quote of a month from the British actor Tom Hiddleston Stay hungry, stay young, stay curious. But above all, stay humble. Because just when you think you got all the answers is the moment when some bitter twist of fate in the universe will remind you that you very much don't. <laughs>